studying the parables of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 13. And today we're going to take a look at two more parables, two very short parables uh, that, that Jesus teaches, the parable of the treasure and the parable of the pearl. Let's take a look at it. First of all, Matthew 13, verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. By the way, if you think this is unethical, Jewish law said if you are working in a field and you find treasure, uh, it's yours. Okay, um, But he goes above and beyond. He doesn't just take it. He covers it up. And what does he do? Then in his joy, not his drudgery, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's the parable. Finds a billion-dollar treasure, goes and sells his $100,000 worth of stuff and buys the field, and now he's a billionaire. Second parable. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. That's it. Two parables. Okay? Now, um, let me put these parables in their proper setting. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells seven parables. Parables of the kingdom. And you could almost say these are parables explaining this stage in the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God has gone through various stages. Up to this point, God had primarily worked with the people of Israel. But then out of Israel comes the Savior, and Jesus is announcing a new stage of the kingdom of, uh, of God, of the kingdom of heaven, where the Gentiles will be brought in. Right? And then there's future stages. Some people believe that when Jesus returns, there's a thousand-year millennium where he'll rule here on earth. And then there's, after that, um, the eternal state, the new heaven and the new, the new earth. But what he's doing here is he's preparing us for the age we live in right now, this stage of the kingdom. Now, um, the problem is a lot of the, the hearers who first heard him thought, when they heard the word kingdom, they thought King David, mighty army, slaughter the pagans, take over the world. Right? So the kingdom of God, here's our Messiah. He is going to destroy the infidels and take over the world. And Jesus begins by telling two parables that are kind of shocking. In fact, the, the two beginning parables basically teach one thing. The kingdom is resistible. It's not going to slaughter the world. In fact, you, the way you enter it is by hearing a message and believing the message. And people can reject the message. The first parable is the parable of the four soils, where a farmer sows seed and it it grows and produces a crop in one soil, but there's another part of the soil where it doesn't even grow at all. And then there's two soils, the thorny soil and the rocky soil, where you think there's growth, but then time shows that it was not true belief to begin with. 
and the, the kingdom can be resisted, is the point. The second parable is the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Farmer sows some seed, and as the wheat grows, he discovers that an enemy has planted weeds, and the wheat and the, the weeds are growing together, and the, the helpers say, should we pull out the weeds? And, and the farmer says, no, let them grow together until the harvest. Point. Until Christ returns at the harvest, the planet will be occupied by believers and unbelievers. The kingdom can be resisted. So that's the point of the first two parables. Then last week, we looked at the next two parables. And these parables talk about, you know, even though the kingdom can be resisted, these two parables talk about the fact that the kingdom will grow. There will be worldwide growth of the kingdom. It tells a parable of the mustard seed. A little mustard seed, you plant it in the ground and it grows into this huge, we had a picture of how big a mustard plant can be, huge plant. There's going to be worldwide growth. We talked about um, the fact that there are about 2 billion professing Christians on the planet. And he talked about the leaven, a little bit of yeast. Work it into some dough and it penetrates through the whole, the whole dough. And uh, the kingdom of God will penetrate and permeate and affect the whole world. And we talked about uh, how Christianity has influenced the world that we live in. So, first two parables, the kingdom can be resisted. Second two parables emphasize that the kingdom will grow. Now, what do these two parables emphasize? Value. The value of the kingdom. Those who hear the gospel and enter into the kingdom see it as the most valuable thing in the universe and they're willing to trade everything they have in for the kingdom the kingdom of god to those who believe is the most valuable thing in the universe right so let's pick this apart there's a, a man a worker working in the field and there's a merchant whose job is to go around looking for pearls who do the men represent? Us. People. Now, some of your study Bibles say that the man in each of these parables represents Jesus. You go, well, what's that? Well, he, he's the one who trades in his life and purchases us. We're the church. We're the pearl. We're the, we're the treasure. The, the problem, the, the, the only reason they say that is they can't understand. They're troubled by the fact that the word buy is in this parable. They go, well, we can't buy the kingdom, and here the guy buys uh, the pearl, so that can't be, uh, the, the men can't be us. Well, I think they misunderstand what's going on. Okay, we'll talk about what the buying actually represents in a minute. But most orthodox interpreters would say that the men in this parable, they're you and me. The uh, treasure and the pearl represent the kingdom in all of its priceless blessings. Okay? The pricelessness of the kingdom. And then, if there's any difference between these two men, okay, it's this. One of them stumbles across the kingdom 
The other has been searching. We got a stumbler and a searcher. Okay? Some of you. You've stumbled into the gospel. Some of you literally stumbled across the street. And you heard there was a church meeting in this building, and rather than drive to Randall Road or some other place, you give it a try. Boom, you hear the gospel, and you are now in the kingdom. Haven't been, haven't been you know, climbing the Himalayas to find God. You haven't searched. You just kind of stumbled across the kingdom. Okay. Um, or, or some of you kids, you haven't been seeking. Your parents dragged you here. Or spouses. Stumblers, draggers, what, however it works. You weren't looking, but you heard the gospel and now you're in. Right? Now, the other one, the other one represents searchers. There are people who their entire life have been seeking after something. They don't even know what it is, but they know they're missing something. And they, they try hedonism, the pursuit of pleasure. Or they try success. Being rich in business. Or they've tried philosophy. Or they've tried different world religions. Or they've tried every church and they just they haven't heard the gospel. And finally, they hear the true gospel. Not the fluffed up gospel. Not the fake gospel. The true gospel. And you understand the value of the gospel. Right? Now, let's deal with the words buying and selling here. Um, the first man in his joy goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Second man, he sells all he had and he bought the pearl. Okay. Some people say, well, wait a minute. I thought you were saved by believing in Jesus, not by buying the kingdom. This seems like you are, are making a trade you're taking your life and barter, bartering it for the pearl of the, of the kingdom. In other words, it looks like a works salvation or you're earning your way to heaven. No, no, no. That is not what this is picturing. Right? The willingness to sell all you have and buy the treasure. Right? It's not a picture of earning salvation. It's a picture of what happens in the heart of a person who gets it, who understands the value of the gospel. And the gospel becomes more valuable to them than anything else in the world. So they're willing to throw it all away in pursuit of the gospel. It's not a, I purchase it with money or I earn anything. It's a, I will throw it all away in pursuit of the one thing that matters. It's a picture of a heart change. It's really the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3. Paul tells us that before he found Christ, the most valuable thing in the world to him was his reputation as a Pharisee. Okay? Because he was in the Sanhedrin. And he kept all the external rules, and people thought he was very holy. In fact, he even presented his own righteousness before God. 
thinking that God would be impressed with him. And then he heard about Christ. Actually, Christ met him on the road to Damascus. And here's what it says in Philippians 3. Philippians 3 is Paul's version of these two parables. Okay? He says, as for zeal, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Remember, he used to hate Christians. He used to kill Christians. First Christian martyr, Stephen, Paul was behind it. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. I, I kept the Sabbath laws. I kept the tithing laws. I, I washed my hands the way a Pharisee is supposed to wash his hands before uh, you eat a meal. I knew all the prayers. I was instructed in the law. I just kept it all. I was the perfect religious person. I was faultless, flawless, blameless. But then he meets Christ. And look what he does with his valuable self-righteousness. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. Here's a guy who's literally lost everything, and I count them as rubbish. Skubalon is the Greek word. They're nice. King James says, anybody know? Dung. Right? I counted all that. I used to live for dung. Some of you are living for dung. Then I met Christ. And I left the dung behind. And now I I count it all as loss compared to the surpassing uh, knowledge of knowing Christ Jesus. He gave it all up in order that he may gain Christ. So Paul didn't earn Christ by giving up his religion. But he, he did know that when he received Christ, he would have to abandon his most valuable thing, his self-righteousness. He knew he'd be disowned by the Sanhedrin. He, know, he knew he'd be disowned by the Jews, by his family. He knew he'd be persecuted. He knew that he might even die. And he waited out, and he goes, so what? One way to know if you're saved is this. Do you value Christ more than anything? And remember, then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. This is not a, well, I guess if I have to. Boy, I'd really like to live in my sin, but I don't really want to go to hell. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll choose Christ if I have to. I've, I've gotten out the yellow, yellow legal pad, and I've done the pros and the cons, and I don't really want to. Well, what are my friends going to think of me? If I have to start reading that Bible, Bible study, hope I don't turn into some of those Christians. <laughs> but I don't want to go to hell. All right, I'll do it. That's not what this is a, a picture of. This is a picture of a person who sees Christ as the, the pearl of great price in his joy. He says, I don't give a rip what my friends think. 
I don't care about being rich. That's all dung compared to knowing Christ. Are you saved? Are you saved? Or are you doing a legal pad thing? Now, um, here's what I want to do. I want to look at the pearl. See, we could take this message in a bunch of different directions. (laughs) Technically, I have five minutes, but we never go by the clock around here. Okay. Um, I, I, I could take this in the direction of, well, let's examine our joy. Do we really have joy in Christ? Or we could say, let's examine what we're willing to give up. That could make you feel really bad about what you're not willing to give up. Okay. But you know what? And I've, I've heard it preached this way, where it's all about examining yourself. You know what I think the parable requires us to do? The parable requires us to ask the question, what's so valuable about the pearl? What is it about the pearl that produces people who are willing to throw it all away for Christ. Okay? Now, um, <laughs> here was my plan. Seven pearls every... I'm kind of expanding the metaphor and saying, okay, Christ is the pearl. But now, when you receive Christ, there's treasure. What, what are the pearls, plurals, pearls, that you receive in Christ? And the idea is not to dwell on you and whether you love him enough, but to dwell on him to produce the love in you. Okay. So first what I did was I sat down with my yellow legal pad. I actually did it on my computer. And um, I said, all right, so what is so valuable about Christ? And the list just went on and on. I said, we could do a 12-year series on this. Okay. So then I, I narrowed it down um, to seven things, seven very theological things that, that we're going to talk about. Okay? And then I realized last night as I went over my notes, I'm not going to be able to cover seven things. So I whittled it down to three things. And now as I look at the clock, we'll be lucky if we get through one thing. Okay? So um, let's, let's today at least try to cover the first thing that if you are a Christian... You possess in Christ. Okay? Now, don't let the big theological terms scare you or turn you off or bore you. Because when you understand them, they're sweet. Okay? One of the questions I, I ask my students is, should we use big theological terms in church? And they debate you know, the pros and cons of it. And here's what I say. Um, I say we shouldn't use them... To show off, you know, some people, well, they use words like sanctification and premillennialism and hyper-dispensationalism. And they're just showing off. That's like when um, some pastors like to, to um, say the Greek word. I did say the Greek word, scubalon, because I think it sounds cool, but um, scubalon. Um, but some of them, like, they'll say the Greek word and they'll mispronounce it. Um, and, and there's no reason to say it. They're just showing off. And I don't think you should use these big theological terms to show off, but I do think we should use them to educate uh, our people so when they come across these words again, 
um, you'll know what they are. Right? So um, the first thing, the first pearl that you receive in Christ is propitiation. Okay? Some of you are offended already by that word. Okay? Propitiation. What in the world is that? Well, when you trust in Christ, here's what happens. God's wrath toward you is fully spent. In other words, God is no longer wrathful toward you because God fully vented his wrath, which was directed toward you, upon Jesus as your substitute. So now, no more wrath. God has no more wrath toward you who are in Christ Jesus. Now, um, if that message were preached 200 years ago, people would cry. There would be shouts of hallelujah. Today we go, You see, while it should be good news, for most people it's confusing news. Why? They go, what wrath? First of all, I didn't know God was angry at anybody. I thought he was just a nice grandpa. Right? And secondly, if he does have a little wrath, like maybe toward Hitler, okay, it's only for bad people. I'm, I'm a nice person. So I don't get this whole propitiation thing, the wrath of God. You know, there are people who go to church their entire lives and they've never heard about the wrath of God. Um, I used this statistic before. I'll use it again. They asked Americans, how many, uh, how many of you believe you deserve to go to hell? Answer, one half of 1%. So 99.5% of Americans think we're quite good with God. What's there not to love? Right? So when I bring the good news... That in Christ there's propitiation. People go, what? Why do I need that? So we have to first spend some time uh, talking about the bad news. Now, now let me let me expand on this. How have we gotten to a point today where people think they're fine before God? Where people are, are appalled? to hear about the wrath of God. How have we gotten here? Well, let's talk about, first of all, the church problem, and then secondly, the self-perception problem. Okay? First of all, there's a church problem. It used to be that virtually everybody in America went to a church and some semblance of the gospel was preached. Today, statistically, 50% of people, uh, 50% of people uh, in America call themselves regular church attenders, which means 50% don't even go. Okay. But here's the dirty little secret. Half of the 50% who go only go once a month. Because, you know, they got better things to do. Sleep. <laughs> go on a picnic. Whatever. So, um, really, it's only about 25% who regularly attend. And that's generous. It's more like, I, I heard in Kane County, it's more... 
it's, it's more like this. On any given Sunday, 19% of the people are in church. Okay. You go, well, at least 19%. That's better than Europe, right? Well, um, here's the problem. A whole boodle of the churches that people are in this morning are liberal churches. Churches that haven't mentioned hell in 100 years. Last time they mentioned it is when they voted it out of the doctrinal statement. Okay? So they go to churches where there is no wrath of God, and you go there just to sing the pretty hymns, and there's nice stories about Jesus, and there's a potluck. Nice. And you know what? If that's what I experience, I wouldn't go to church either. Why waste your time when you could be doing something productive like sleeping? Right? Then there's the, uh, the seeker-sensitive churches. Right? Who in the doctrinal statement, there's hell and the wrath of God. But what's preached on Sunday is all the helpful, useful messages about how to have a better marriage and better children and balance your checkbook and just blah, 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 tickle your ear stuff that doesn't really save anybody's soul because the pastor will do a 10-week series on economics and then he'll get to something about the cross in the last series and people go, well, if he didn't think it's that important that he didn't need to mention it until then, why should I take it that seriously? And these churches are growing because, you know what, if you study marketing long enough, you can get people in your door. Then we have the evangelical churches that are, you know, the, the trendy, emergent ones like Rob Bell's church, where he just wrote a blockbuster book that everybody loves, saying that there is a hell, but in hell you get a mulligan. You know, mulligan, when you're golfing, oh, do over. You go to hell, you go, oh, it's hot, let me out, and you get, a, you get out. So that's the state a lot of the church is in today. So what used to be the heart of the good news, propitiation, Christ being nailed to a cross and enduring the eternal wrath of God on our behalf, we're ashamed of it. That doesn't sell. That won't pack the parking lot. So we're ashamed of the gospel. We're ashamed of the cross. Or it's presented in such a lukewarm way that it's not the issue. People don't tremble before a holy God really believing that they have violated His holiness and deserve eternal condemnation. So we have to produce hyped-up, man-made buzz instead of letting the gospel do its work. Right? So that's a church problem. Uh, what about the self-perception problem? There are people who, who hear the message that Jesus died in their place on the cross. 
and they go, wow, but I don't feel that bad. I don't feel like I'm that bad a sinner, so I must not be. Okay? You know, I, I tell you this. I ask as many people as I can the question. If you were to die today and stand before God and, and he said, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? Virtually everybody says, because I'm not that bad a person. Or some kind of a combination of, well, I believe in Jesus and I'm not that bad a person. Kind of a combination effort there. Okay? But, but here's the problem of doing self-evaluation of how bad you think you are or how good you think you are. Jeremiah said it this way, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Your heart is in no condition to evaluate whether you're guilty or not. That's kind of like, I don't know if I've shared this before, but you know Elizabeth teaches um, human development at school. So she takes you through the various stages of when you're this age, this is uh, how your body functions and your mind functions and so forth. And um, we discovered a valuable tool in parenting teens. Okay? we discovered that their brains are not fully developed until they're like 25 years old, right? So if we're having a little disagreement with one of our kids, we poll this. We go, <laughs> well, obviously you think the way you do because your brain has not been fully developed yet. And it, they, they, like, they get that stunned look like, oh, man. How do you argue with that? <laughs> so that works, okay. Now, they can pull the other thing because after 25, you're on a steady decline. <laughs> you, haven't, you haven't thought of that one, have you? <laughs> oh, but when he's 25, watch out. It's going to be perfect. Okay, so our hearts are in no condition as unbelievers to assess whether we're guilty or not. You know, there are prisoners in death row right now who've done horrible things to people. And I don't feel guilty. But here's the issue. The issue is not how they feel. The issue is, are they objectively guilty? That's what the court of law was for, to show their objective guilt. If, if we only punish people who felt guilty, we wouldn't punish very many people. The same is true of you and me. Now, so the question is not how do you feel? I feel pretty good about myself. The question is before God, how are you? What is God's assessment of your condition before him? So let's go to Romans. Ladies, let's go to Romans. Okay, the ladies are studying Romans on Friday mornings, right? So um, let's skip. I'm going to cheat and go to chapter 3. Okay, because here's what happens. In Romans 1... Paul condemns the Gentile world for their depravity. So then when he enters into chapter 2, he knows the Jews are nodding their head going, yeah, those Gentiles are disgusting. You know, they are, just don't even mention them. We are the religious ones, though. And then in chapter 2, Paul levels the Jews for taking self, like, like Paul in in Philippians 3. He was taking pride in his Jewish law-keeping. And by the time you get to chapter 3, 
Here's Paul's conclusion about us. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Even if you're one of the 99.5% of Americans who feel pretty good before God, guess what? In God's sight, no. You are not righteous. Not one of you. No one understands and no one seeks for God. Let's build a church for God seekers. There are none. There are none. What about the whole seeker thing? What about Romans? All have turned aside. Together they have become Worthless. You know what God's assessment of you and I are? Is, am, are? We're worthless. We're worthless. No one does good. Not even one. All right, so take your feelings of feeling pretty good, set them aside, and say, God, you assess me. There, there's the assessment of all of humanity. There is no fear of God before their eyes. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You say, but, but I try to keep God's commandments. I'm pretty good at keeping his laws. Well, here's what Paul says in Romans 3.20. For by works of the law, okay, for by For by trying to keep the law, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, declared right in God's sight. Since, now look at this, this may shock some of you, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What does that mean? God never gave you the law to try to earn your way to heaven. Now, it is his standard, and once you're saved, you are to live that way. But why did God give you the law? To show you, to show you your sin. Through evaluating yourself honestly with the law of God comes a knowledge of sin. And again build the church, we don't want to offend people, so we don't talk about sin because that might be uncomfortable. So the church grows, but nobody's convicted of sin and sees their need for a Savior. So, so let's, let's do this. How are you doing at keeping the law? You're not to use the Lord's name in vain. Have you ever taken God's holy name or Jesus holy name and used it as a swear word you have blasphemed the holy God of the universe and you deserve eternal condemnation how dare you use the name of Jesus as a byword thou shall not lie you ever lied you are worthy of eternal condemnation. You ever committed adultery? Oh, that's something I've never done. 
Now, you're going to go by the externals or what Jesus says. If you have ever lusted, you have committed adultery in your heart and are deserving of the eternal wrath of God. That's what people need to know. If we love people, we need to tell them of their condition. If I'm a cancer doctor and you come in and I look at the x-rays and I see you're just full of cancer, but I don't tell you about it, but say we're having a block party at our house this weekend. Why don't you come? There'll be good music and games. I don't love you. So you need to know, I need to know that, that we are sinners before a holy God. And because of our sin, let's go back to Romans 1. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And, and look at this, not only are we unrighteous, but by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What do we do? We not only sin, but we rename it something else. We suppress the truth of the holiness of God and our own condition. And you know what that produces in God? But there's good news. The good news is that God looked down on all of humanity and saw unrighteousness and rebellion and His wrath welled up. And then in His love, He became a man and was nailed to the cross. And as Jesus hung in agony on the cross, God took His wrath and vented it on His Son. And the good news is, when you see the pearl of great price, Jesus, and you receive Him, your wrath that you have earned No more wrath. And that's some good news. Surely, He took up our infirmities. He carried our sorrows. Notice the language of substitution. He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered Him stricken by God, smitten by Him, and afflicted, but He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. You know, um, one way to realize the value of propitiation is when you're living your Christian life, and one day you wake up and you go, I doubt that I'm saved. I went through a period of that. I've shared it in the past. And um, I thought I wasn't saved. I was wrong. 
Okay, but uh, I went through that struggle, and now I go, I, I look back, I go, why would God allow that? I think uh, to have sympathy for people who are in that situation. But also, um, now I love the word propitiation. I remember those weeks of agony and struggle. I remember having dreams of being in hell. And then God reaffirmed in me the truth of the gospel. In fact, the gospel's outside of me. It's not what's going on in here. It's what went on on the cross. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Not on how, how I'm feeling. And I cling to the cross now because that's where my confidence is. Right? By the way, if you're in that situation where you go, I thought I was saved, but I'm not so sure. Oh, well, what are you doing? If you're not sure you're saved, how can you say, oh, well? How can you, how can you watch the Bear game this afternoon? How can you go on vacation? How can you have any doubt about your eternal destiny where the wrath of God will be poured out for eternity? How can you be so foolish? If you are not 100% sure that you are in Christ, your full-time job is pursuing Him with all your heart and resting at the cross. And until you do that, you are wasting your life. But when you come to the cross and you see a man in agony hanging there, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you realize God forsook him because he's dying in my place. I deserve what he is getting. And you rest in him and you trust in him. That's the pearl of great price. There is nothing more valuable in the world. Let's pray. Let's have the worship team come on up.